Hey guys, it's September 7th, 2017, and you're listening to the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Ezeldyke, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, car ideas, car thoughts, car dreams, car whatever. Uh, you know, fall apparently seems to be happening, and when fall arrives, that means that it's new car launch season. We're getting previews for 2019 models as we speak. Uh, we're seeing lots of news start to roll out. We're almost to car show season, the most exciting season of the year. Well, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, we've got uh, news that broke yesterday about the new Nissan Leaf. It finally showed up. It's going to be interesting to compare it against the Chevrolet Bolt and the Tesla Model 3. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, story number two, or thought number two, I don't know what you want to classify the second segment as. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about gear selectors. Uh, a lot of technology has been changing the way that we do gear selectors in our cars and trucks and SUVs and, well, whatever else people buy. Um, so some thoughts on where we're going with things like that. And then in the last segment, I want to talk about a car that has one of the most detailed Wikipedia entries I have read about a vehicle. Uh, it's a late model Japanese luxury sedan. It's not exactly the most well-liked car. It is a rare car, to say the least. Uh, so we'll get to that at the very end of the show. So stick around, guys, after the bump. We'll talk about some cars, and we'll see you then. All right, guys, so the 2019 Nissan Leaf was unveiled yesterday in Japan. Uh, some of the American outlets got to go and see it, so a couple of them got to drive it. Uh, overall, some basic impressions of the new Nissan Leaf is that it's a new Nissan Leaf. Um, they seem to have learned an awful lot from the Chevrolet Bolt and from the Tesla Model 3, or at least anticipated some of what's coming up. Uh, early versions of the Leaf are going to go on sale in Japan at the end of this year. Um, later ones are going to come available in the United States in early 2018 as we shift the Smyrna, Tennessee factory over to the new version. Um, key points on this is that the car is a little bit larger. It's, um, I believe it's a little bit longer and a little bit wider. Um, so it gives you a little bit more of that size comparison that it needs to compete directly with the Bolt. It's going to have a 40 kilowatt hour battery in the standard version that gives it 150 miles of range. Uh, there's going to be a later version that has a 60 kilowatt hour battery that gives it a 225 mile range that puts it square in line with the Chevrolet Bolt and the Tesla Model 3. Um, pricing, this car is actually a little bit cheaper, about $700 cheaper than the outgoing model. Um, so all in all, all told for a baseline one, you're looking at about thirty-one dollars out the door with destination before tax, yada, 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 yada. Um, but you're looking at about that price plus the $7,500 tax credit and whatever your state and local incentives are, there's a pretty good chance that you could get a Leaf out the door for right around twenty dollars which in my opinion, if you don't have to drive too far in a day, that's a pretty damn good deal. Um, as far as other improvements go, uh, styling-wise, the car looks less like a cartoon. Um, it, it doesn't, well, the hard part is, is that the previous Leaf had a very cartoonish appearance, but it was definitely of its time, and I think it's going to age a little bit better than what this one does, which adopts a lot more of the Nissan corporate styling. So it takes the aggressive V-grill that you see in all the fronts of the Nissan trucks, cars, performance cars, all that stuff. It looks okay. It's not the best thing. It's not the worst thing. Uh, on the back, it's got the floating roof style um, that we've seen from the Murano and the Rogue. So overall, the car to me looks like a really small um Nissan uh, Murano, like shrunken way down, which not a terrible thing. It's a pretty good looking car overall. Inside, a lot of improvements on materials. It definitely looks like it's going to be a much nicer place to be. They said they've made it quieter um, because there was a lot of wind noise with the uh, 
mirrors on the outside. Um, so that will be nice. It also looks like in some of the press photos that the car is running, excuse me, Apple CarPlay and potentially Android Auto. Um, at least personally for me, Nissan has one of the worst infotainment systems available out of any car maker out there. And adding this kind of functionality to their vehicles is a godsend. Um, you know, Honda also suffers from a similar problem where their system is just atrocious. And as soon as you plug your phone in, it makes it a lot better. Um, so hopefully this fixes a lot of problems with the car. But, you know, with a car that gets a range of about 150 miles for somewhere in the mid $20,000 range, I'm going to be really interested to see how well this sells compared to the Bolt. Um, the Bolt, of course, has been selling kind of slowly, but once the sales went to more states, it's been doing a little bit better. Uh, the Tesla Model 3, obviously, it's pre-ordered till years from now, um, and we'll see how that one does. But, of course, the Tesla Model 3 that most people are going to be getting are going to be versions that have the larger battery, not the basic trim models. So we'll see. Um, I'm really excited to see the Leaf, maybe drive the Leaf. They've got a new uh, regenerative braking system. I believe they're calling it the E-Pedal. Um, that one is going to be a situation where it's got really aggressive regenerative brakes. So Nissan is saying that you can drive the car almost completely with one pedal. So kind of think of like how you drive a golf cart or a go-kart. Um, you know, throttle down, you go. Let off the throttle, the car uh, will come to a complete stop pretty quickly from what I understand. So it's going to take some getting used to, but I think in the city or uh, if you're a rural driver, even, I think that's going to make a lot of difference, especially if you've got a lot of rolling hills, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think. If you guys got some feedback on the new Nissan Leaf, drop me a line here on anchor FM or hit me up on Twitter at Y S S M I N. Thank you. So now for a segment where we literally shift gears, I want to talk a little bit about gear selectors and modern automobiles and the weird things that are going on. Um, so this been, there's been this whole movement where we've had like purposely electronic or purposely chosen electronic shifters for vehicles like the Toyota Prius, where there's some kind of weird selector on the dashboard to change gears in their CVT gearbox, which kind of has transformed into this whole notion that we need to remove everything from the center console to give people more space for their drinks, for their cell phones to charge, for their iPads. I, you know, I don't know how all this is going. So um, some of the big culprits, at least in the past couple of years, has been Jaguar doing the uh, rising column knob situation uh, in the old XF or F-type or whatever it was. We had the uh, Ford move to the push-button selectors on some of the Lincolns that were up by the steering wheel. We've had Honda take out the gear selector, uh, the traditional type gear selector on the center console for the Honda Pilot to a push-button gear selector. And now we have GMC doing what are basically uh, little switches that you pull uh, to change gears in the new GMC terrain. In practice, I think it's going to take a lot of getting to getting used to for a lot of people, but it sounds like people really like having that extra space in the center console. I, for one, think it's cool in some applications. In other ones, it's just unnecessary. Uh, the Jaguar one looks amazing, but in practice, I get worried about that electronic column raising up and down and eventually breaking uh, because, let's just face it, it's a Jaguar. That's what's going to happen. Um, you get to something like the switches in the GMC terrain. The good thing about that is that 
It prevents people from doing one thing that drives me crazy where people are in reverse and then they suddenly throw the car into drive and then pull off straight ahead. I know that it's not the worst thing in the world, but it drives me freaking crazy. So it's going to try to solve an issue where one, you're giving yourself more space, and two, I think they're trying to avoid the situations that Fiat's had with the Jeeps and the uh, Chrysler 300s and the Dodge Chargers with the electronic shifters, which don't seem to really indicate when they're fully in park or drive or whatever. Um, I don't know. It, it's just, it seems really weird. A lot of people have said that uh, in the magazine testing of things like the Honda Pilot, that once you get used to it, it's not too bad. But the problem is, is that so many vehicles that are out there, especially when they're going car to car to car to car to car, so many more vehicles have the traditional gear selector in the middle that it doesn't make a lot of sense to be the only stalwart if all of their other vehicles aren't going to be doing the same kind of thing. Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember if the new Accord has a traditional gear selector or not in the middle, um, but it seems like if Honda would do what they did with the Pilot with the Accord, that would really get the ball rolling for a lot of other vehicles uh, to come out with those push-button selectors, especially in the center. Um, but in practice, I think something like what GM's done with the Terrain makes a weird amount of sense. I, I haven't driven one, but I've fiddled with it sitting in the uh, showroom of a dealer, and I don't know. I, I don't like the way that they do the select the low range, and then you can manually select buttons by pressing up and down arrow buttons. That's just ridiculous, and it's distracting, especially if you've got to do something where you're towing and you have to manually select a gear. Um, I don't feel like that's the safest uh, conclusion to come to unless there's some kind of uh, gear selector on the steering wheel, um, but... Hmm. I don't know. It's going to take a lot of time to think, and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of shakeout we have in the automotive segment over the next couple of years. Um, a lot of brands seem to be kind of going toward this, kind of monkeying with the idea. Um, I think the GMC terrain is really going to be a good indicator for GM as to whether or not they're going to keep doing it. Um, I think the Honda Pilot's still another test vehicle. Both of them that have very wide sales numbers where they're going to get a lot of data as to whether or not it's going to keep happening. Or it might be something like these infotainment systems that have come out in the last couple of years that lack, you know, radio tune knobs and volume knobs. And they've heard nothing but bad press about it. And now a lot of cars that had gone without now have them again in their most recent refreshes. So we'll see. Um, I'm interested to hear what other people think. Um, I'm, I think there's going to be a lot more think pieces on this. Um, so maybe, you know, when we get a little bit more feedback, we see some more cars at the car shows this year. We'll follow up on this piece. See you after the bump. Alright guys, last segment of the day, it's a car that's been on my mind, it's a car that has a super detailed Wikipedia entry, and that is the Acura RL. More specifically, I'm talking about the second generation Acura RL, uh, the one from 2005 to 2012. Um, Acura, as a brand, has always kind of had the weird red-headed stepchild nature to uh, Honda, at least here in the U.S., because some of their cars have been viewed as just tarted up Honda Accords and other distinctions that just kind of make the brand feel like less. And that's something that definitely plagued the uh, second generation RL here um, just a few short years ago. Um, so you had a car that uh, was based loosely on the Accord platform 
that had a few trick things up its sleeve. It did have a corporate 3.5 liter V6, which made about 225 horsepower in the early versions, but Honda did add a very fancy SH all-wheel drive, super handling all-wheel drive system to the car that was able to torque vector uh, power from the left to the right, from front to back, uh, to give the car really aggressive uh, handling characteristics, considering that it was a Japanese luxury vehicle. Overall, the design was really attractive, and especially in the early models from 2005 and 2008, um, that you know definitely signaled a path where uh, Acura was going style-wise. Um, you know, it was a pre-beak or shield-style system uh, that Acura had that really. I think is still one of the more attractive looks that they've done. Uh, Interior-wise, it's the typical Honda overabundance of buttons and screens that you'd normally expect. Um, but not quite as crazy as what the current one is. You know, the RLX, for all of its merits, uh, especially when it comes to performance, it's a little too much compared to the previous RL, in my opinion. Um, but even then, that's still very restrained compared to some of the other Japanese luxury vehicles that are out there. Um, early RLs in 2005, they sold about 17,000, 18,000 of them. Uh, by the end of the run in 2008, or excuse me, 2012, they only sold 379 vehicles. That is absolutely incredible that they had gone from that much to that little in that amount of time. Uh, as Doug DeMero, uh, frequent uh, YouTuber and Twitter personality on automobiles, has pointed out, there were more Ferraris, some Ferrari models sold that year than in the U.S. than there were Acura RLs, and that's just absolutely insane. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm interested to see how well this car is going to hold up in the future of the automotive, uh, or excuse me, in the Japanese luxury segment of a weird attachment that people have. Um, you've got the early Lexus LS model, I think, has gained a lot of attention from people um, for being a really well-crafted vehicle that, you know, has got a pretty powerful V8 and seems to hold up really well. And, you know, can do a million miles like Matt Farah's one that they're trying to get to right now. Um, I think that's going to maybe not quite be the same case for this RL. As much as I really like it, um, the market didn't really seem to. And overall, you know, you got a car that's considered to be one of the most reliable, most safe Japanese luxury vehicles that have been built in the past couple of decades. Um, you know, it's a car that on used car values, you're seeing them kind of hover around the um, high teens, low 20s range, which seems pretty fair for how much car you're getting. Uh, overall, wow, it just, it's a cool car. It's a cool car that just didn't get the following that it deserved, and it's it's disappointing. Um, I would be interested to see, you know, given another couple more years, maybe another five or six years, to see how these cars do, um, just because they are so rare, you know, it, the later ones sold maybe 2000 a year before they dripped down to that very low amount in 2012, but, you know, the RLX that replaced it, it's been a little more well accepted by the press, because it's been a little bit more luxurious, it seems to know what it wants to be a little bit more, but, even then, it seems like the previous version was even more well accepted, but the public just hated it. So, you know, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. Feel free to drop me a line here on Anchor or uh, hit me up on Twitter at YSSMAN. Let's talk about the Acura RL and why it's one of those cars that when you see it, you kind of go, yeah, I remember the RL, but nobody really does much else with it. Thank you, guys. All right, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast for September 7th, 2017. Um, as always, you can find me 
Brad Eiseldyke on Twitter, at Y-S-S-M-A-N. That's the best place to hear more about what I have to say about cars, politics, among many other things. Um, You can also subscribe, like, comment, whatever you got to do on the various podcasting platforms. Uh, I record these here on Anchor FM, which is always a good way to hear things now and then. Um, You've got uh, iTunes. I'm up on there. You've got Google Play. You've got Pocket Cast. There's a couple others where I'm listed. A lot of those aggregators catch these RSS feeds and they, uh, they pull them into their system. So if you dig what you're hearing, if you dig... Uh, how I'm doing things, you want more people to hear and see it, uh, like, subscribe, rate, comment, blah, 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 blah. You know how the whole YouTube and podcast begging system works. One of these days, we'll have a podcast Twitter, we'll have a podcast Facebook page. We'll see how it all works. I don't know. That's a lot of extra work to do right now. Um, You know, and with all that in mind, guys, I just want to reiterate that I think you guys are great. I want you guys to remember to go out, have a good weekend, enjoy your car, drive it safely, and overall, just be a good person towards other vehicles. If you see a cool car, you see somebody driving a cool car, you see something you like, you tell them. Because that's the best part about car culture, is that we all like cars, and we all like different things, and it doesn't take much to make someone's day saying that they also like something cool. So with all that in mind, guys, have a good rest of your day, have a good rest of your night, have a great weekend. We'll see you next time here on the Salvage Title Podcast.